0: You are listening to the Sunday Sermon from Crossroads Bible Church in Bellevue, Washington. To learn more about Crossroads, visit us on our website at cbcbellevue.com. Lori had a wonderful grandpa. His name was Wally MacArthur. My wife was blessed with the man who became known as Mac. Now Mac was very well known for his sense of humor. He could nail a joke just perfectly. And he loved telling jokes to his grandkids. He had a favorite joke. Jenna, what's the difference between broccoli and boogers? Kids won't eat broccoli. No, no, no. And he could tell this over and over. And because of the way he timed it and landed it, it was just perfect. Timing is everything. Timing is everything. You shouldn't ask for a raise when the business you work for is imploding. You shouldn't give a rebuke to someone who's threatened by you. You shouldn't come upon a person who is grieving with laughter. Timing is everything. That's even true when it comes to preparing a hamburger. If you don't cook it long enough, it's raw meat. If you cook it too long, it's a coal. It's true of medication. If you take it at the right time, in the right dose, it may heal you. If you don't take the medication, it certainly won't. If you take too much of the medication, it could kill you. Timing is everything. Now, have you noticed how important time is to us? I mean, just stop and think. You may be wearing a wristwatch. You have a smartphone on you. In your vehicle, on the dash, there's a time. You've got a clock in your home with your desktop, with your laptop, on your oven, in your microwave. I mean, your DVR, Google Home, Alexa, we could go on and on and on. If we were to count all the time pieces that we own, it would probably be in the 20s, the 30s, for some of us, the 40s. Time is very important because timing is everything. Everything. The Bible makes it clear that timing is everything. That's not just a well worn cliche, the Bible actually teaches it. And nowhere is it more apparent than in Ecclesiastes chapter 3. Ecclesiastes chapter 3, the most well known passage in the book of Ecclesiastes. And what Solomon is going to do is he's going to explain to us why timing is everything and what difference it should make in our lives. So in Ecclesiastes chapter 3 verses 1 through 15, we'll see four concise challenges that answer the question, why is timing everything? Beginning in verses 1 through 8, Solomon says, expect change. Expect change. In other words, God is sovereign over life and over creation, but there will be changes on a regular basis in our lives. Verse 1 is the thesis. And then in verses 2 through 8, we have a poem. Perhaps the most well-known of poems in Scripture. Now, verse 1 lays out the thesis to set up the entire passage. Solomon writes, There is an appointed time for everything. And there is a time for every event under heaven. So we're going to hit the obvious first. The word time is used, are you ready for this? 30 times in verses 1 through 8. So you don't have to be a Hebrew scholar to figure out the key word here. It's obvious. This is a message and a text about time. But we do need to make a few quick observations, not only of verse 1, but also of verses 2 through 8. First of all, Solomon is writing using poetic language. Now, the important part of poetry is poetry lays out principles, not precision. In other words, when we look at this text, we're going to see descriptions, not necessarily prescriptions, what we ought to do. Solomon is just describing life under heaven, life under the sun. So understand that. Don't take every verse and every statement to mean right here, right now, I need to apply this. Secondly, if you look at the term appointed time, it's a Hebrew word that emphasizes God's sovereignty. And notice what the text says. There's an appointed time for everything, not for some things, particularly the good things in our lives. Where we can see the hand of God and the favor and the blessing of God. No, Solomon says everything. Every single solitary last thing. This ought to comfort us. This ought to encourage us. But it gets better. Do you see that word translated event in verse 1? Solomon refers to every event. Notice the universal language, everything and every event. That word event is the Hebrew word delight. Now Solomon could have chosen any number of terms that would have described the concept of event, but he chose the term delight. Why would he do that in a depressing, discouraging, and seemingly demoralizing book? Because throughout the book of Ecclesiastes, contrary to what some would have us believe, there are glimmers of hope, and the book ends with great hope. No matter what you're going through today, God is sovereign over it. And you and I can delight in the fact that God has a purpose, even in our grief, our loss, And our extreme suffering. God is orchestrating the events for his sovereign purpose. So we've seen the thesis. And this is the umbrella under which everything falls. Now in verses 2 through 8, we get into the poetic section. Now before we look at verses 2 through 8, it's important to understand that there are, are you ready for this? in seven verses, 28 declarations, and they are 14 polar opposites. I mean, ultimately 14 positives, 14 negatives, and then it covers and encompasses everything in between. This is extreme poetic language, and when you have extreme poetic language, it's important to understand what God is attempting to do. Again, It's not necessarily prescription, it's description. These are principles, and they are not always as precise for a given moment, and we need to recognize that. There's a time for everything. Look at verse 2, which is going to help guide us throughout all the poetic language, particularly the first statement. A time to give birth and a time to die. A time to plant and a time to uproot what is planted. Solomon begins brilliantly. He says, there are two days that you cannot change or alter. That is your birthday and your death day. Those belong to God. God is sovereign over those. You can be in the midst of harrowing danger. And yet, it's been well said, if you're in the center of God's will, no matter where you are and how dangerous it is, that's the safest place on earth. So, no one or nothing can stop you apart from God's perfect plan. Now, we do need to make a caveat here, obviously. There are ways that human beings can attempt to tweak a death day. Abortion, murder, and suicide. And often we think that God is somehow outside of the control of these events because we may say they're sinful or evil. But here is what we need to understand. And I can't speak on this at great length right now because I don't have the time. Let me make it short and sweet. In some inexplicable and inexpressible way, God remains sovereign. I can't articulate it fully, especially with only a moment to do so, but God is sovereign. He is sovereign over nature. He is sovereign over human life, and he is weaving a tapestry to fulfill his sovereign purposes. Do I always understand it? No. Do I always agree with it? No. But that's why he's God and I'm not. We trust him in the midst of grief, loss, and pain. Solomon even says there's a time for flowers, plants, and trees to be planted. There's a time for them to be uprooted, which is also a picture of human beings like you and me leaving one place and moving to a new destination or ultimately Rooting in the place that God has called us. Both rooting and uprooting. Everything is covered in verse 2. And what we see is God is sovereign even when it seems like life and even ministry can be a revolving door of people. Helps us to realize not to take ourselves too seriously and to take God seriously. And to invest in this life and in people while we can. In verse 3, Solomon gives a rather unusual statement. Solomon writes, a time to kill and a time to heal. A time to tear down and a time to build up. Now some of you, when you read verse 3, you're thinking, this is not a description. This is a prescription. I, I have a hit list. I, I, I have some people that I would like to take out. Or have taken out. I've got the proof text. The preacher just said it. We need to be very careful here. This is not a license to kill. Specifically to murder. Understand this. The term that Solomon uses is not the Hebrew term for murder. That term is used in Exodus 20 when we're going through the Ten Commandments. Thou shalt not commit murder. This is quite different. This term can be used in a context of capital punishment. It can be used in a context of self-defense and even just war, which the Scriptures do detail. So, we have a time to kill and a time to heal. We have those two extremes. And then if you look at verse 3, the tearing down and the building up. That can deal with everything from the construction of homes to nations, but often in the Old Testament, it deals with the construction and the building up and the tearing down of human life that comes with the fleeting nature of life and the fragile nature of our lives. Solomon is helping us to understand timing is everything and time moves with ebbs and flows, and yet God is over it all because He's large and in charge. In verse 4, Solomon says, a time to weep and a time to laugh, a time to mourn and a time to dance. How about that extreme language? You've got polar opposites here. I've already said to you that our congregation is going through a very difficult season with a number of deaths, with some near deaths, with tragedy both within our congregation and outside of our congregation, with some of our loved ones and friends. Solomon would say, there's a time for weeping. And there's nothing unspiritual about that. In fact, it's often the godliest thing that we can do for ourselves and for those that we are in relationship with. Just stop and think about this. In John chapter 11, when Jesus witnessed Lazarus in the tomb, Lazarus was one of his best earthly friends. He wept, knowing full well he was going to raise Lazarus from the dead within a matter of moments. He still wept for a number of reasons. In Matthew chapter 26, when Jesus is going to be betrayed and he's going to go to the cross, He weeps, he grieves, yet he knows he's going to be resurrected. Jesus understood the importance of grief. And he was the most spiritual and godly person who has ever lived or will ever live. If you're in the midst of grief right now, grief, let it run its course. Don't try to short-circuit it. And don't even let the people in your life short-circuit it because it will rear its ugly head at a later time when you don't want it to. And for those of us who are doing life with people, who are experiencing grief, suffering, and loss, let's grieve with them. It's the godliest thing that we can do. Come alongside someone, not talk. Let the only talking be praying with them and for them. And just grieve with them. For those of us who are grieving, the truth is we will laugh again. It seems impossible for some of us right now, but the reality is God uses humor and laughter to heal. He does that even with those who do not believe in the Bible or in a God. Laughter is used to heal us physically, mentally, and emotionally. I think sometimes in the church, we think it's somewhat unspiritual to laugh too much and to enjoy good and appropriate humor. But the truth is, down throughout church history, the greatest of men and women, they loved humor. Martin Luther, the founder of the Reformation and Lutheranism, he used to say, if there's no laughter in heaven, I don't want to go there. Now, he was being extreme, much like Solomon, but the point is well taken. And Luther then explained, when there's not laughter on earth, it's because we don't understand what heaven is like. And laughter has its origin in heaven. So we need to make sure that there is laughter on earth. Charles Spurgeon, the prince of preachers, a mega church pastor when he was 18 years old in London. He had a woman come up to him and say, You use too much humor in your preaching. And Spurgeon, without missing a beat, said, You have no idea how I hold back. C.S. Lewis said, The greatest sound to his ears was a hearty laugh from a man. Probably because Lewis understood that men are often reserved and we stuff our emotions and so Lewis loved a hearty laugh from a man because he knew what that would mean to his psyche. I always think to myself when it comes to life and ministry, if I don't have a sense of humor, if I don't maintain my sense of humor, I will not persevere in life or ministry. If I'm honest with you, my life is too hard. And the life that I am in the midst of right now, without going into detail, it is flat out difficult. And if I don't learn to continue to laugh, I'm not going to make it. And you're not going to make it in the midst of your circumstances, in the midst of your turmoil. If you don't learn to laugh and to enjoy the company of people who are filled with humor and joy, know that that will provide your healing in the course of time. In verse 5, we come to a very odd verse. And this is the most difficult verse in the entire poem. And most of us don't know what to do with it because there's so many different possibilities. But I'll make it quick and painless for you. A time to throw stones and a time to gather stones. A time to embrace and a time to shun embracing. While there are many interpretations, the best interpretation as far as I'm concerned is, this is referring to being in the midst of war, throwing stones on enemy ground, and then at some point when there's a time of peace, collecting those stones and allowing replanting to occur. And Solomon says there's a time for hugging, and there's a time for no hugging. In other words, there's a time for everything. That's what he's arguing, but he's arguing in the realm of extremes. Now in verse 6, He says, a time to search and a time to give up is lost. A time to keep and a time to throw away. I love this verse. This is one of my favorite proof texts. It's a proof text that some people use for garage sales. But I don't do garage sales. I do shop at Goodwill. So some of you have questioned my choice in clothing. That's because I only shop at Goodwill and Salvation Army and some other places like that. And so, what Solomon is suggesting is, in this verse about possessions, there are times where we should give away. There are times where we should accumulate. And there is a season for everything. Now, I can't help but say, on the east side of Seattle... There's great relevance in this verse for us because most of us, we need to be giving away. We need to be going through our closets. We need to be going through our attics and our garages. And we need to be finding ways to unload possessions instead of hoarding possessions. But along with that, there's guilt-free Christian living. God gives us good gifts. God is a generous God. And sometimes because we're so cautious of the prosperity gospel movement, as we should be, that's a doctrine of demons, but we sometimes forget the fact that God gives good gifts and we need to celebrate those good gifts instead of wallowing in guilt and shame. God has been good to those of us who live in this region of the country and those of us who are living at this time in human history. In verse 7, Solomon has a powerful verse, a time to tear apart and a time to sew together, a time to be silent and a time to speak. What I love about verse 7 is Solomon comes back to grieving and suffering loss. But this time he intensifies it. He moves from grieving really into ancient Near East mourning. See, the language depicts what happened in the Old Testament among the Israelites. When they were going through a time of sorrow or grief, they tore their clothes. They shredded them. They put on sackcloth. They put ashes on their head. And they didn't talk to people. They knew how to grieve. They knew how to mourn. But they also understood that after the time of mourning was complete, they would sew back their garments, they would begin to have normal or typical conversation, and they would go on with their lives once again. What I find so beautiful is, many of us don't know how to grieve or mourn. And that's where the ancient Near East believers are one up on us. And we need to learn how to grieve and mourn, knowing that we don't do so as those without hope, as Paul says. But there's a healing that takes place when we grieve that way for ourselves and with others, knowing that we're in a cursed and sinful world. If you'll notice, the emphasis in verse 7 is that we need to talk less, and listen more. I'll be honest, I talk too much. Now, I don't talk as much as some of you, but I talk too much. In my silence, I have never once lost my integrity. Not once. But there have been countless times, even as recently as this past week, when I have opened up my mouth and I have sinned I have sinned against God. I have sinned against others. If I could just keep quiet, my life and my ministry would be so much better. And that's true for all of us. May we be quick to listen, slow to speak, and slow to get angry. May we focus in on using caution with our speech. Because here's the thing, when you do finally speak, then your words mean something. People are like ready to listen to you then. If we're just blabbing and blabbing and blabbing, and if we're over speaking, people tune us out and our words lose their power. Solomon concludes this poem in verse 8 with the most well-known verse in the poem. Now for some of you who remember the birds, I won't go into this because most of us, myself included, were not alive, they wrote a song, turn, 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 3,000 year old poem that they put to a song that made it to number one. But we're not going to talk about the birds because they uh, made a mistake with the uh, exposition of this particular verse and its context. Nonetheless, This is why this verse is so well known, a time to love and a time to hate, a time for war and a time for peace. We understand a time for love. Jesus' disciples are to be about love. By this, showing love for other disciples, all people will know that we are Christ's disciples. But what we need to focus in on is hate because we don't understand that concept. There is such a thing as holy hatred. We should hate alcoholism, but we should be compassionate for those who are ensnared in alcoholism. We should hate sexual immorality, but we should recognize that there are no sexual saints, including your pastor, and we should have compassion and tenderness with those who are caught in a cycle of sin and addiction. We could go through so many sins that God says He hates, even sins like pride and gossip and envy. But the bottom line is this, we should hate the sin instead of coddling it, but we should have such a tender affection and such a mercy and compassion for those like us who are caught in sin. Solomon is clear, whether it's war, whether it's peace, whether it's life or death, or all the extremes in these seven verses, there's a time for everything, and in the midst of time, we need to expect change, because we can go from one experience to the next in the course of a day, or in some cases, a week, a month, or a series of years. We need to expect that, that things are going to change. That's the first challenge. The second challenge is found in verses 9 through 11, and that is ultimately accept limitations. Solomon is going to say, in light of the fact that God is God and we are not, we need to accept the fact that we don't understand him or his ways. In verse 9, Solomon asks a question. It's a rhetorical question. What profit is there to the worker from that in which he toils? This rhetorical question expects a negative answer. Nothing. There's no benefit to the work under the sun. And yet, there's that glimmer of hope that comes shining through that because God is a sovereign God and He's over all the circumstances in life, we know that even in our work, which Solomon would say is Havel, it's fleeting It's futile, ultimately speaking. It's still a form of worship to God, and we need to recognize its value to a sovereign God. In verse 10, Solomon begins to really lay out his experience. I have seen. So Solomon has seen something. I have seen the task which God has given the sons of men with which to occupy themselves. He has made everything... And everything ties all the way back to the everything in verse 1. He has made everything appropriate, suitable, beautiful in its time. He also set eternity in their heart. Yet so that man will not find out the work which God has done from the beginning and even to the end. Solomon says, I've seen what all of humanity is doing. And yet They can't possibly understand the mind and the ways of God. His ways are not our ways. Our thoughts are not his thoughts. And so Solomon says, that should give us confidence. That behind all the events, not just the good events, but the bad events and the ugly events, God is sovereign. He's sovereign behind everything. Solomon says that God has placed eternity in the hearts of all people. The word can also refer to darkness, hiddenness. So there is a mystery that we cannot comprehend. We cannot understand God fully. But what we can know is God has placed a question mark in the heart of every human being. It's an eternal itch. To know, what is my purpose? What is meaning in life? Is there a higher power? All of those factors, those questions, people ask when they can't sleep at night. Sometimes when they wake up in the morning and they feel like they can't make it another day. Christians and non-Christians both ask those questions. And God says he has placed eternity in the heart of every single solitary person. Blaise Pascal, the French mathematician, is well known for saying that there's a God-shaped vacuum in the heart of every human being. Augustine said that our souls are restless until they find their hope in you, God. The truth is, In this life, we're not going to make sense of all the tragedies, of all the events that have devastated us. But I can assure you of this, God has a purpose in it all. And that is what this text hits us with again and again and again. But the key is eternity. It's the afterlife. I've always wanted to go to Egypt It's the place where a lot of persecuted Christians live. But they're also known for their tombs, their pyramids. And I've wanted to see those. Because I've learned that the pyramids, approximately 100,000 workers took over 40 years on the average to build those. And you have to ask the question, why? It doesn't seem to be a good use of time, pardon the pun. I mean, what are they doing? Why are they doing that? It's because they believe in the afterlife. And they believe they're going to spend more time in the afterlife than in this life. 21st century Christians could learn a lesson from the Egyptians who built the pyramids and the tombs. Because while their views of the afterlife are skewed, They at least invested in this life in preparation for the afterlife. May we do the same. May we recognize that this life is a breath, it's a vapor, it's a mist, it's here today, it's gone tomorrow, and we need to ensure that we understand eternity is based upon God and His purposes. So we've seen ultimately that we need to expect change and accept limitations. Now, things get good. Solomon is going to give us a third concise challenge. And I love this one. Enjoy life. Enjoy life. Verses 12 and 13. Listen to these words. Solomon ups the ante. He goes from, I have seen, to, in verses 12 and 14, I know. I've experienced this. I've learned over the years. This is so good. I know that there is nothing better for them than to rejoice and to do good in one's lifetime. Moreover, that every man who eats and drinks sees good in all his labor. It is the gift of God. Go back to verse 12. Do you see that phrase, nothing better? This is the second of four nothing better passages. Solomon says that while you're passing through this life, on the way to the life to come where you experience true life, enjoy your life. Enjoy the process. Understand that each day that you're alive is a gift from God. Understand that God is giving you good gifts to enjoy. See, you don't know, and I don't know, how long we're going to be alive. We don't know how long our loved ones are going to be alive. We've got to make the most of it. Eat ice cream this evening. Play in the rain with your kids. Watch a rom-com with your wife. Hang out with your single friends. Do life in community with them. Go out for a nice dinner. Enjoy your favorite pastime. Enjoy life, because you may not be alive tomorrow. And all of these activities. They're good gifts from God. And He wants you to thank Him for them and to make the most of them. Doesn't mean that you have to be extravagant every day of your life, for tomorrow you may die. You're still called to be a good steward with the resources that God has given you, but enjoy it. Enjoy every day as a gift from God. The fourth and the final challenge that Solomon gives Is found in verses 14 and 15, and that is fear God. Solomon is going to say that is the reason that you were created. It's your calling in life, so be about it. Solomon again writes, I know that everything, you see that use of everything? He's just nailing that. I know that everything God does will remain forever. There is nothing to add to it, and there is nothing to take away from it. For God has so worked that men should fear him. This is good stuff. Solomon is speaking about God in the present and he's saying the past is in the present to God. The future that has yet to be experienced by humanity, that's in the present tense for God. Everything is a part of God's perfect plan and his perfect timing. And so Solomon says, here's my bottom line, fear God. Now you may be saying, Keith, I don't know what it means to fear God. I mean, that just sounds like some old-school church language. I think the reason we don't fear God is we can't see Him experientially. We can't touch Him. We can't have that one-on-one personal conversation like we do with a human being. But I've been to Niagara Falls the Grand Canyon, and the Swiss Alps. And so have some of you, and you've seen other majestic parts of the world. And when I have been in the presence of these places, I have sensed the awesomeness of God. There's been this sense of awe and trembling, and I've said, if this is God's creation, who must the Creator be? Fearing God means not just having awe for Him, not just having reverence for Him. As one commentator has put it, it means trembling trust. We quake before a holy and righteous God. Yes, we stand in awe of Him, but it doesn't stop there. It moves to trust and obedience, I would argue, particularly in the midst of personal suffering when it's easy to fall away from God and to rebel against God. If we were to boil down this text, these 15 verses, what we would say is God's perfect timing should result in trembling trust. PT, not physical therapy, perfect timing. God's perfect timing should result in trembling trust. So, what does it mean to have this type of trembling trust? Verse 15 summarizes everything that has been said. That which has been already and that which will be and has already been, for God seeks that which has passed by. Verse 15 continues the argument of verse 14, which, by the way, is the key verse in this passage so you should circle number 14 in your hard copy or in your electronic device the passage has been arguing God is sovereign over everything and everyone there are no accidents there are only providences God is sovereign and if I could emphasize anything to you not just today But perhaps over the course of my ministry here, it would be that. That no matter what you're going through, God is a sovereign God over your circumstances. And with his sovereignty comes mercy, grace, compassion, and love. What a God we serve. Verse 15 says again, past, present, and future is all God's. But it gets better. There's that emphasis in the last clause of this passage on seeks. It's a Hebrew term that deals with shepherding. That God, the good shepherd, actually seeks and he shepherds people like you and me who have a past. And when I look at my past or you look at your past, you see evil, sin, sin. Neglect, rebellion, you see all the things that you've said and done and you feel like you can't get back your past and you can hardly move forward in the way you want. That's where God, the seeker, comes in. He takes your past. He restores it and redeems it. That's a sovereign God. God's perfect timing should result in our trembling trust. I learned something this past week as I was preparing this message. The New Oxford English Dictionary has collected data for many years. What's the most frequently used noun? What's the most frequently used verb and adverb and adjective and all of that? And over the course of years, there has been one noun that has always topped the list. At least prior to COVID. I won't tell you what the most popular noun is now. That would be too controversial. (laughs) But for years, the most used and popular noun has been time. Time. I was shocked to learn that. Lori and I both did independent research as far as we could to figure out if it was accurate, and it's accurate. Time is important to human beings. Time is important to you and me. And I said at the inception that timing is everything. So why is timing everything? Because the God who is outside of space and time invaded time in the person and work of His Son, the Lord Jesus Christ. Galatians 4.4 says, at the fullness of time, God sent Jesus. Romans 5 verse 6 says that while we were helpless, God sent Jesus to ultimately be our Savior from sin. God demonstrated his love for us in this, that while we were yet sinners, Christ died for us. Trace the term time in the Old and New Testament, and what you will find is it's everywhere And nowhere is it more strategically used than in the Gospels, in the life and ministry of Jesus Christ. The reason that time ought to be important to us is because it's important to Jesus. And it's important to God. May we redeem the time that God has given us no matter what we are going through right now. God's perfect timing should result in our trembling trust. Let's pray. Father, we come before you as humble and broken people in need of your gospel. And your gospel tells us that you entered human history through your Son, the Lord Jesus Christ, at the right time for the right purpose. Lord, we acknowledge today that if there is no coming of Jesus, if there is no life and ministry and death, resurrection and ascension of Jesus, this life is not worth living. There's only significance, meaning and purpose because of Jesus. And we just acknowledge that today. Father, I pray for those who have that eternal question mark, who have that eternal itch, and right now you may be here in person or watching online and you're saying, I don't know that I've settled my eternity. Please, don't let this moment pass. This is an appointed time. This is a delightful event under heaven where all you have to do is Give Jesus your sin and he will give you his righteousness. You can then cross over from death to life and be assured that you will spend eternity with Jesus, with God, with all those who have placed their faith in Jesus Christ. If you're here today and you're in need of comfort because you've experienced so much tragedy and loss in your life, God would say there's a purpose even though We may never know it this side of eternity, but he's a loving and compassionate God and he wants to meet you today. There will be people available at the foot of the cross to pray with you. There will be those of us who will be at the Welcome Center. There's a prayer group online. Cast your cares upon the Lord and upon his people because a sovereign God wants to minister to you. Father, we acknowledge that there's no hope in this world apart from the gospel of Jesus Christ. Thank you for sending Jesus to restore and redeem us. Thank you for giving us eternal life. Help us to live for your honor and glory and make the most of our time. We give you the praise in Jesus' name. Amen.